Well, good morning, Lighthouse. How you doing today? It is an honor to be here, and uh, I want to thank Peter and Laura for inviting me to come to be here uh, to celebrate Renewing the Dream and to talk about Recovery Road. I also want to uh, thank the Newfields, and I have so many dear friends here, the Wadsworth and and uh, also Mijet, Crazy Mijet and uh, Sonora and so many friends, Daniel Guzman, uh, of course the guy that met me and uh, led to my recovery and helped me become a disciple. He and another guy met me, and they were the personification of the civil rights movement. I've shared this before. Uh, in 1979, I was a freshman at Florida A&M University, and I'm uh, there in the dorm room, Young Hall, second floor, and this very white guy with uh, a jean jacket and uh, cowboy boots on is in my dorm room, I mean, in, on the dorm floor. And uh, this very dark guy, uh, who you know very well, and they're, they're, they're together as a partnership for the old guys, sort of like Crockett and Tubbs from the old, from the old days. Now, those, those of you that are new, I know you don't know anything about that. So anyway, they're in my dorm, uh, on my dorm floor, and uh, this one brother who is an elder here had a, um, a trench coat on and gym shoes. And he's the African-American guy, and the white guy has a jean jacket on and cowboy boots. And I'm thinking, how in the world could these two guys actually be friends and hang out together? What are they doing here? They must be here selling drugs, okay? So let me go over and talk to them. And uh, that began sort of my, they weren't selling drugs. They were actually inviting me to a Bible study. And I said, sure, I'll come. And I don't know if you experienced that where you're not really interested but your mouth says what your brain isn't saying. And so uh, even though I didn't want to, there was a deeper part of my heart that knew it needed recovery. And so uh, Dave Moss is a dear friend who I, uh, in so many ways, owe my spiritual life uh, and Bill Whiteman. And because of their outreach and their love, I'm here today with all of you. So thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Dave. We're not selling drugs. and. Um, we're here today to talk about recovery, and I want to say this. I really appreciate and admire the fact that you guys in your church, as multiracial and multilingual as you are, have taken time today to honor and to acknowledge the story of African Americans in this church and in this country. And I want to say to you that the African American story is no more or less important than the Asian American or the European-American, otherwise known as Caucasian, or the Asian or Latino-American. Everybody's story is important. And seeing God's family, unlike the world's family, in the world often some stories are more important than others, but in God's family, every story is equally important. And I know God is proud of this group because you're honoring these stories. So great to see the beginning page and chapter of Laura Marquez's story, who was just baptized. And that's what it's about. Recovery begins with personal spiritual recovery before God. And so today, we're going to talk about Recovery Road. And the truth of the matter is, our nation has been on a road to recovery for hundreds of years. And our nation is one that has a heritage, and all of us have a heritage of nobility, and hypocrisy, of chivalry, and cruelty. 
And it's not either or, it's both ends. And just like our family histories, there's good and bad in our national family history, there's also good and bad. And so today we're, we're, you know, we're talking about Recovery Road and we're in part three. And we all know, how many of you uh, have known that we've been in this thing called a recession? Raise your hand if, if you knew that. You didn't know that. Okay. And it's been the worst economic recession in our lifetime since the 1930s. And there are signs of, rec of recovery, though it's a bit halting. And there are, you know, ebbs and flows and pushes and pulls. And all of us feel it. And we're looking at how could a nation so wealthy as ours end up in such challenging times in terms of debt and in terms of uh, deficit and so forth and so on. And, and you see all these political factions battling back and forth against each other. In fact, it was so great seeing on the video the civil rights legislation of the mid-60s under Johnson has colored our political landscape to this day. And there are party affiliations in our country, particularly in the South, that are exactly the same as they were in the 60s that were predicated on some uh, conviction or lack thereof about civil rights uh, legislation in the 60s. And so we have a room full of people. Some of us watch CNN. Some of us watch MSNBC. Some of us watch Fox. The more spiritual of us just watch ESPN. Some of us are libertarians. You know, some of us are Tea Party. Some of us are the Occupy Wall Street. We all have those feelings and those uh, convictions. But what we want to do as Christ followers is be different than those that we see around us. And there are a couple of big ideas that frame this whole concept of Recovery Road, and we're going to look at a couple of them uh, by way of introduction. And the first one is this. Let's not be like others and view our faith through the filter of our politics, where we call ourselves Christians, but what dominates how we think and how we act is our political persuasion, and that takes precedent over our Christian values. Let's instead be another kind of people. Let's be different, and let's view our politics through the filter of our faith. And let's have more conviction and let's argue more forcefully and let's communicate more passionately about what we believe about God than what we believe about politics. And that's something that can help affect and change our nation. Another big idea that we want to look at, and I love this one, is that the road to recovery begins with we, not they. And if there's one thing that we experience in our nation politically is you've got all the parties constantly pointing fingers at each other. But it begins with we, not they. The other thing that we can learn is that the road to recovery begins with me and not with me pointing the finger at you. And I want us to ask ourselves a question. When, it, when we look at our personal situation, our political persuasion, where we are spiritually, are we quicker to examine ourselves? As Peter talked about last week, taking a fierce moral inventory, or are we quicker to point the finger at the other person blaming the situation on them? We've got such a great opportunity to be different because of our relationship with God. And so today we're going to look at the credibility factor. 
Now, I have to give you a little background. Can everybody hang in there for about three and a half minutes of historical background? Say, say I can. Say, turn to the person to the uh, right and left of you and say, I love history. <laughs> okay. Even if you lied, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay. It's under the Christian umbrella. It's all right. So here's the deal. In about 586 B.C., the nation of Judah and the capital of Jerusalem are functioning, but they are being besieged by the superpower of that day. And it was, they were the Babylonians, and their king was Nebuchadnezzar. And in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem, took over Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, uh, deposed the king, and took the Israelites, took the Jews of that day into Babylonian captivity. Fifty years after that, the new superpower that defeated the Babylonians was the, were the Persians. And they took over under King Cyrus. And what they did is, after they took over from the Babylonians, they decided, you know what? We want to send all these captives that the Babylonians had taken, we want to send them back to their native lands, back to their homelands. And so they took the Jews and repatriated them, sent the Jews back to their homeland. And you can read about that in the book of Ezra under a guy named Zerubbabel, the first uh, exile restoration and them going back and return was in about 536 BC. There was a king after Cyrus. Cyrus was the one that uh, reigned over Persia at that time. And then he had a successor named Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes continued the policies of sending these captives back that uh, Cyrus had begun after the Persian Empire took over. And during this time, there, uh, King Artaxerxes had a servant, and he was a Jewish uh, man. He had never lived in Jerusalem. In fact, he probably had never visited there. But this guy was a servant to him. He was his cupbearer. And back in that time, the cupbearer was really important because he tasted all the wine to make sure that the king wasn't going to get poisoned drinking wine. And beyond that, he was a trusted, the guy that's drink, tasting your wine, you have to trust. And he was someone that was really, in some ways, near the inner circle of King Artaxerxes. And so this Jewish man is serving this Persian king, and this Jewish man's brother and some friends who had returned from uh, Jerusalem came to him and said, you won't believe how terrible things are in our nation. Imagine if you had a nation that had been ransacked and all the, the people had been taken into exile and it had sat there for 50 years. And then all of the Jews returned. The temple is destroyed. The walls are broken down. All of the, the people, uh, all of the Jews that have come back are in debt up to their ears because they've been leveraged and they've been uh, taken advantage of and loaned money but, but not been able to uh, pay it back by the surrounding nations that were more wealthy than the Jewish nation who didn't have a standing army, didn't have any strong economy to speak of. And so it was a dire time. And this Jewish man, when he heard that news, the Bible says that he wept, he fasted, he confessed the sins that his forefathers had committed because he realized the reason that the nation of Israel was in the condition it was in was because of the sin that his forefathers had done. But instead of pointing the finger, he said, we, all of us are responsible. In other words, he took a fierce moral inventory 
of what he and others had done. And he owned the situation. But then beyond that, God put a vision in his eyes and a dream in his heart. And he said, I want you to go back to your home nation and to your home country and help rebuild the the city of Jerusalem, help rebuild the wall, so forth and so on. So this Jewish man goes to the king and says, King, you've got to let me go. I've got to go back to my home. It's in ruins and I want to repair it. And the king is positively disposed to this Jewish guy. And he gives him money. He gives him uh, letters of introduction to the surrounding nations. He gives him his encouragement and he allows him to go on an extended leave of absence. Actually, the Bible talks about it being 12 years where he could go back and help rebuild Jerusalem. But then he would need to return to the king Artaxerxes' service. And so this Jewish man does this. He takes an entourage and he goes back to his homeland. And he spies out the land and he takes, uh, he recruits different people and he figures out the first thing we have to do is we've got to rebuild our wall. Because back in those days, the wall that surrounded a city was the main defense that it had against enemies. It was one of those things that showed that they're in good repair or not. And so it had been broken down, which meant there was no national pride. There was no national security. There was no sense of we're a sovereign nation. He said, before we get to anything else, subsequently they rebuild the temple. They rebuild their economy. But first, we got to rebuild this wall. And so they begin to rebuild the wall. And yet one of the problems, one of the impediments to building a wall is that the men who were the head of the households that were the ones that uh, could help rebuild the wall were in so much debt They were in debt up to their eyeballs to the surrounding nations, so they couldn't take time off of working to help rebuild the wall. So this Jewish man decides that he is going to use some of his own money from Artaxerxes. Now, when you start using your own money, you know you mean business, right? You can wish the world well, but it really matters when you start coming out of your own wallet. And that's what he starts doing, and he starts paying off the debt of these Jewish men that they owe to the surrounding nations so that they can wholeheartedly help build the wall. But then he discovers this incredibly wrong thing that's been doing, uh, has been done, this incredible injustice that's going on, and he decides to do something about it. He really gets ticked off. Anybody ever been really infuriated and ticked off? I mean, those of you, I, those of you that are Patriots fans, when, they, when uh, what you call it, dropped that pass, I know you were yelling at your TV. I mean, when you really get mad at something, this guy was really mad. And so we're going to pick it up in the book of Nehemiah. The guy's name is Nehemiah. And we're going to read uh, just a little bit about this story. And guys, understand, this is the most, perhaps the most incredible national recovery story in the Bible. It is one of the most incredible recovery stories in uh, world history. The guy's name is Nehemiah. And so let's read in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6 about some of this and we'll make some applications. Okay, listen to this. He says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. That's bad when you're charging your own people interest. And he says, I have been spending my money trying to help get these people out of debt. And you are charging them interest. 
I'm really mad. This is not going well. This is not a good conversation. Says, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we ought to bring back fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. That's how bad it got. Where you had Jews who were being used and indentured, being bought out of bondage, whose debts were paid off by Nehemiah, but then their fellow brothers are taking advantage of them again and charging them interest and reselling them back into bondage. And Nehemiah says, what in the world are you doing? You're hurting your own people. You're taking advantage of them. Notice their response. They all kept quiet because they couldn't find anything to say. Ever been in a conversation when you're busted? You want to make it about the other person, but you did, but you said, and then you're just busted. There's no reply. There's no comeback. And these people can't come back to Nehemiah. He goes on in the next passage. He says, so I continued. What you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending money, a people money and grain, but let's stop charging interest. He says, I'm doing, you're not doing right. We're trying to take care of these people and we're loaning them money at a reasonable rate so that they can get out of debt. But you've got to start doing right by your own people. You can't take advantage of it. And when, when you see a corrupt society, when a society has been beaten down, when a, a, a segment of society has been beaten down, one of the ways that you know that's happened is because the people start taking advantage of each other instead of looking out for each other. And that's what Nehemiah is dealing with. We go on to the next slide. Then he says, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. Pay back the interest. Wouldn't that be great if we could tell that to Citibank and Bank of America and some other Probably not. Don't bet on it. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Notice their response. We will give it back, they said, and we won't demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. That's a National Recovery Act where you see people behaving a certain way and charging exorbitant interest. But then because of the conviction of one guy, Nehemiah, they see they're doing wrong and they decide to change and to do right. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath. He says, I don't want to just take your word for it. I want you to swear an oath. And so he says, take an oath to do what they had promised. Notice this. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house, uh, out of their house and possessions, anyone who doesn't keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and empty. You want to make somebody mad? You want to win an argument? Just take your robe, but take your coat and just, I shake this out. I'm mad at you. And if you don't do this, I'm just shaking out my, my clothes on you. And they're wondering, what are you, I've been reading, tell them I've been reading the Bible. Don't you read the Bible? You know, just say something like that. But he's so mad. He says, I don't take you at your word. I'm going to make you take an oath. Next slide. At this, the whole assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. 
and the people did as they had promised. One moment they're extracting interest, the next moment they're taking an oath and repenting and making a decision, I'm never going to treat my fellow Jews this way again because what I'm doing isn't right before God. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Now, if you were the governor, would you eat the food allotted to you? Would you use the expense account allotted to you? The answer is yes. You can say yes. So would I. That's what we would do in our nature, right? But when we think what would be best for the people, like Nehemiah did, we wouldn't take what we're entitled to. And isn't that a hot button issue today? What we feel we're entitled to. Notice this, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. It's a lot of money. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. All the other, other governors that preceded me acted one way, but I acted a different way. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled for their work. We didn't acquire any land. In other words, they could have made a lot of money because they had all of Artaxerxes' money backing them and they could have made investments in land and gotten rich in the transition. But they decided not to exploit those real estate opportunities. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled for the work and we didn't acquire any land. Furthermore, did we just do this? Did we just do that? Okay. We got to move uh, up. I guess that was an extra slide. That's on me, Kevin. Sorry about that. Got all this high extra technology. Okay. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine and all kinds of this. That's what he was allotted. I mean, this dude was rolling, okay? In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because of the demands were heavy on these people. I didn't take what I was entitled to because it was overly burdening to the people. And this is the last one. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I've done for these people. Now, I know that's a lengthy reading. And I know that... There are not a lot of sort of punch lines or applause lines in that reading. And that's okay. Because what I hope that we'll do as a result of having been here, in addition to getting to know people and, and getting to know uh, this group, is to have more awe and gratitude for God who's always working. And secondly, have more of a love for the Word of God and see that the Bible does have answers for how you can help a true National Recovery Act when we have leaders and men and women who are like Nehemiah, who decide, I'm not going to take advantage of what I'm owed or due, but I'm going to do what's best for the people. I'm not in it for me. I'm not in it for my uh, financial gain. I'm not in it for my prosperity. I'm not in it for anything other than what's the best for the people. Moral authority is what we're talking about. 
moral authority. Nehemiah was the governor, but he was he had an authority that the previous governors didn't have. Why? The definition of moral authority. The credibility you earn by walking your talk. And see, you can have and I can have a position. I can have a title at work or maybe you're at school or maybe on some team or maybe you're in the homeowners association or whatever you're in and you can have a title and you can have a position. But that's not where moral authority comes from. It comes from both of us, you and me, walking our talk so that someone says, I might not agree with that guy politically. I might not agree with some of his views, but I trust him. And I'll follow him because I know that he has no duplicity. He's not trying to use people. He's personally sacrificed for what he believes in. And he says what he believes in regardless of the audience. That's what our nation needs today as leaders of moral authority. Here's another way to look at it. One's position gives them a measure of authority. But one's moral authority gives them credibility and influence. And see, Nehemiah, the people listened to Nehemiah not because he was the governor, but because he put the needs of the people ahead of himself. In the Bible, you won't find the term moral authority. But you will find an equivalent term that means, has the same connotations, and it's the word, the, the phrase, beyond reproach. It's the phrase that's used in the Bible quite often. It talks about leaders that are beyond reproach, that don't have secrets, that aren't two-faced, that aren't manipulative, that aren't situational, that don't flip-flop, that say what they mean and mean what they say. It's called men beyond reproach. And this passage in Proverbs spoken by Solomon says it all. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. I have a question for you. This is going to challenge. How many of you enjoy uh, following politics? Raise your hand. While wow, we had a spiritual group, only like 10 hands. That's good. Okay. How many of you hate politics? Okay. <laughs> I understand that. Think about this. Would you rather follow a politician whose platform you agree with but has no moral authority? Or would you rather follow a politician who disagrees with you in terms of policy but is a man or woman of moral authority? That's an interesting question. And it gets back to whether we're going to view our faith through the filter of our politics or our politics through the filter of our faith. What do we do? Pray for Nehemiah. Kevin, what do you want from me? I'm here. We're celebrating uh, African-American history. I want to hear the choir again. What do you want from me? Are you, are you, what, what do you need from me? I want us to pray for Nehemiah. You want to help our national recovery? Let's all pray God. Be they Democratic, be they Republican, be they Independent, Tea Party, whatever they are, whatever caucus they're in. 
Help them be Nehemiahs. And if you get Democratic and Republican and independent Nehemiahs in a room, they can figure out the problem. Versus trying to game the system and just trying to go with whatever is expedient that will help them be reelected. Here's another challenge that's a bit more personal. Why don't we decide to be Nehemiahs ourselves? The question for us is, am I a Nehemiah at my work? Am I a Nehemiah at my school? Am I known mostly for what I'm against? Am I known for what I complain about or what I, you know, disparage? Or am I known for what I believe in? Nehemiah was an obscure cupbearer who became a governor and who changed his national history. And the thing that allowed him to do it was incredible integrity that gave him moral authority. Don't believe the lie that says you're not important. You're just, you've got a small job. You're not, you know, somebody that's in the limelight. Your life doesn't matter. What in the world could happen in our nation if all Christians were Nehemiahs? What can happen in this part of the city if every member of Lighthouse decided to be a Nehemiah, if every member of Turning Point, the L.A. Church, decided, I'm going to be a Nehemiah, whether I'm, you know, tasting wine for the king or wherever I am, I'm going to do it with integrity. And I'm going to do it with moral authority. In conclusion, let's not be like everybody else. And view our faith through the lens of filter of our politics. Let's instead be different and view our politics through the filter of our faith. And once again, as we conclude, the road to recovery begins with we and not they. The road to recovery begins with me and not with me pointing the finger at you. I want to say this last thing. Um, in my time, I was telling Peter, memorize all the Martin Luther King speeches, all the incredible, um, just otherworldly sense of uh, majesty in those speeches. And I have on my DVR a special about the Freedom Riders in the 60s. And you see these kids, like the kids over here on the wall, from the north. And they're Jewish and they're white and they're black and they take their lives in their own hands. And they sacrifice for something that isn't even necessarily, for some of them, not even necessarily benefiting their own people but because of the nation they loved and what was right. And I've often thought to myself, would I be willing, if the same situation were going on today in our, in college, would I have been willing to be a freedom writer? Would I have been willing to give my future, potentially, my education up to do what's right by God and to help my nation? And I'm saying to you, as a nation, we're broken and broke. 
As a people, we're broken and we're broke. As Christians, we're broken and most of us are broke. But God is preparing us. And even though we're not where we want to be, thank God, nationally, politically, racially, and spiritually, we're not where we used to be. We are in God's eternal kingdom. And long after the United States is gone, its kingdom will last forever. And so recovery begins with us. Let's do our best to usher in a national recovery. Let's be Nehemiahs and let's be people that make God proud because we have integrity and moral authority. Thank you.